This will be our concluding talk on crises. And I'm going to speak about an issue that bothers a great deal of people in the course of this talk. And that is, I am not qualified to help you. So you will have someone come to you who's uh, having a nervous breakdown, or who's just been raped, or someone uh, who's an alcoholic or has some other addiction. And you may think that you have no business helping this person. Now, if that fear is extremely deep, so that you cannot speak to them except in fear, then of course it would be better that you refer them to someone. But it must be understood that people have an instinct as to where to seek help. And if someone is overtly turning to you for help, they know what they're doing. You can trust them. I told you the little story about Milton Erickson when he was a teenager jumping on the horse and taking it to the highway because he knew the horse knew the way home. He knew the horse would know which way on the highway to turn and which farm to go into. His job, he said, was simply to keep the horse's mind on the road. So the person who seeks your help will help themselves if you will be gentle and if you will wait and if you will not try to busy your mind with questions about what should you say and what have you heard is a, is a good thing to say to a person in this situation. The particular issues that I have spoken about these last three Sundays are things that I personally have done a great deal of counseling in. I have not had all these experiences. I, of course, mentioned uh, battered women and rape victims, but I've also dealt with men who've been raped in the penitentiary. I've never been raped. Uh, I have been beaten up, as I've told you a couple times, knifed and so forth. I am not an alcoholic, and I'm not a member of AA, and some people may wonder why I mention AA so much. It's just that I have so many friends and relatives who are in it, and I, don't, I just have a very special feeling for that organization, and I've seen such good results. But there are other organizations, of course. And I've mentioned Hazleton in Minnesota as one of the best and one of the least expensive. People from out of state can go to that. And I could, I could give you a list of a hundred more. That's not the purpose here. And I've spoken of battered women, and I've spoken of, uh, I will speak about suicide today, and I was suicidal um, for a number of years, beginning when I was a teenager, up until I would say maybe six or seven years ago, in which I finally just uh, had the brilliant realization that, why not just wait until it's over, you know? <laughs> I cannot speak to you with more authority about suicide than I can alcoholism. And I'm trying to, because I have been suicidal but haven't been alcoholic, uh, 
I've had people die who are close to me, but I haven't had a child die. And yet I've done, Gail and I have done several years of counseling with people who've had children die. Now I mention this because you will find yourself in the same situation. Oh, I have no business helping this person. But you must trust the instinct of the individual. It's very interesting in talking to, for example, an adolescent um, who is being molested in their home, or maybe the younger sister or, or younger brother is being molested by an uncle or whatever the situation may be. It's very interesting who that adolescent picks out in the family or among the circle of friends to talk to. Other people might think this is the most unlikely and maybe even the poorest choice for that child to turn to. But when you work closely with the situation, you can see the just rightness of it. The world thinks that expertise and first-hand experience is the prerequisite for giving help. It isn't. It is simple peace and love. It is a faith that the person knows the way home. It's, it's a recognition that this individual, whatever they're going through, is just like us. We've gone through some very hard things ourselves. And we know we came out of them all right. We know that a hand guided us. And so you can trust yourself to simply hold this person's hand. Do not think that you need to give a great deal of specific advice. People who are scared and think that they are not qualified make this mistake above all else. They think they have to give endless suggestions. Give one or two very simple suggestions if, if you feel comfortable doing this. And leave it at that. And concern yourself with just being a comfort to this individual. You see, it, it doesn't matter what we say to people, as John uh, <laughs> demonstrated this last week when I found myself uh, sick with something. I don't know what it was, but I was lying and groaning on, on the bed and uh, called for help. And John rushed in and said, put his hands on my stomach, and he said, let me say grace. <laughs> and then he closed his eyes and he said, Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Now, uh, I know that Gail is a little large for her her particular state of pregnancy right now, but we hope, it's not, we hope we're not talking about a litter here. <laughs> and uh, I, asked, uh, I asked John, of course you ask children these silly questions and they'll give you a silly answer. I said, who are your brothers and sisters? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? He started naming every single person he could think of. <laughs> I'd like to cover just a few more of the general rules before we get into our remaining topics, which were counseling an alcoholic, uh, suicide, 
death and divorce, which I said we would cover together because they're so similar in the way people's reaction, the way people react to both a death and a suicide is almost identical. Of course, there are exceptions to everything that I that I'll say, but I'm talking about in the in the general course of things. So let me conclude with these general principles that we haven't talked about yet. It would help a great deal if you wish to be in a position to help other people for you to pause often and remember the truth. This is a wonderful habit. The thought will occur to you that you haven't been pausing. This is a very interesting phenomenon. This is how the ego works. You see, we at this point are more tuned to our ego mind than we are to our actual mind. We're more tuned to the mind that our imaginary identity that we've created has. So in the dream that you had last night, you had a, an imaginary identity, and that imaginary identity had imaginary emotions and thoughts that were peculiar to its body and the circumstances that surrounded it. And the body that you had in your dream last night may have been quite different than the body you have during the day, but if you could go back, you could see that you had you, your thoughts were within that context. An imaginary identity must have an imaginary mind, and it must conjure up imaginary thoughts and imaginary emotions. Now, that's what we are all focused on at this point. We think this is what we are. And we actually hear these, which are, in a sense, simply a reaction to our actual thoughts. So the thought that comes to you, oh, I haven't been pausing enough, came after the recognition that you could pause now. But you didn't hear that. You heard, oh, I haven't been pausing enough, which is an ego ploy for you to spend the time feeling guilty instead of pausing. So anytime you find yourself thinking, I really should be doing so and so and so. I haven't been doing enough of such and such, whatever it may be, whatever the particular thing is you're working on at the moment. Notice the very curious phenomenon that it comes right at the time when you've got a second or two and it only takes a second or two. It does not have to be formal. You do not have to sit down. You can pause in the middle of a conversation. You can turn your thought to God no matter what is going on around you. And there's a certain calming of your whole being. It doesn't have to be a perfect calming. But there's a certain settling. If you wish something to do to become a better counselor and a better friend and a better parent, pause more often and remember the truth. And do it in a way that's pleasant for you. Don't ask yourself how you should do it or are you doing it right. Anything that you do that relaxes you a little bit, makes you a little bit happier, a little bit more lighthearted, is taking you far further than you can imagine at this point. The second thing is something we've mentioned here a great deal. If you remember the, the wonderful phrase, Pip Allah, pause in peace and act with assurance. Now, the act with assurance part means that you act 
as if the truth were true. So another ego ploy is that we must see our way through before we begin this part of our spiritual journey. And actually, it's just the other way around. You must act as if the truth were true before you will come to believe it. So you have an intellectual understanding which actually is an echo of a true understanding that's in your heart. It's, it's another one of these businesses of focusing on what the ego mind's doing instead of your real mind. Actually, in your heart, you believe the truth. You know the truth. You are comfortable with the truth. The truth is an old friend. And you have your own words. And they may be religious or spiritual words, and they may not. And someone who's in a, on a spiritual path very earnestly may totally disagree with your words. And it makes no difference. Because words are these little kachinas that just represent the gods. And so it seems as if you begin with an intellectual understanding of these things. But that's just an echo of your real understanding. But nevertheless, don't worry about that. Just start with your intellectual understanding of the truth. Just say, in my heart I know, and then complete the sentence about the situation, about whatever. In my heart I know, and then just say the words. It'll be a simple truth. In my heart I know. I don't seem to believe it now. I don't seem to feel it now. It seems almost hypocritical for me to be saying it to myself now. But in my heart I know. And then act as if it were true. I'd like to give you an example from my own experience. One of my assignments, evidently, in, uh, in this little uh, soap opera that I've chosen this particular time, uh, is to write books for other people uh, or to help them with their books or to contribute <coughs> to their books. This has been going on for several years and I've had a difficult time with this. My ego has had a difficult time with this because uh, in many cases there has been no money and almost never is there credit. And so once again I found myself uh, writing a book for which I would not get full credit. And um, the book wasn't getting written. This went on for several months. And I thought that it was all these things that were happening that were keeping the book from getting written. Gail and I got together. This is uh, an interesting safeguard. You know, the, the, uh, the voice for fear can mimic the voice for God. So you, you, can, you can receive a message that is that sounds exactly as if it were coming from God or the Christ or your deeper self or your intuition, whatever you want to call it. And it's not. It's the voice for fear. It sounds exactly the same within your mind. This is never anything to worry about. If you will simply take the peaceful part of whatever thought has come to you and act on it, 
And that is sufficient. Never concern yourself with, with trying to figure out where this particular thought or spoken word is coming from. That is a useless journey. You won't be able to do it. But what you will be able to do is eventually you'll be, be able to discover some places in your life where you can rely quite safely on the message. I've spoken of general things that you can be sure of. The voice for God, as that's the term that's in A Course in Miracles, so that's the one I'll use. But it doesn't matter that you use that, that term. The voice for God does not relate specifically to the world, except very, very, very rarely. And in those cases, it has the effect that it needs to, and therefore there's nothing to worry about. But generally speaking, the voice for God will simply tell you, will simply remind you of the truth. And what your ego might think are quite boring terms. It isn't something that you will run out and quote to other people necessarily because it's so obvious. The voice for fear always relates to the world and to specifics. Often it will tell you something that relates to you, that may give you a personal advantage, that singles you out in some way, or tells you something that you want to hear about the future. The reason that the voice for God does not tell you things about the future is there is no future. And that's all we're learning. There's only now. So to tell you things about the future focuses your mind on the future and puts you in a process. Now you've got to complete something before this thing will happen. Now all of your life and all of your time is in between. And so the voice for God does not tell you about the future or give you exciting news about your role in the world. It just reminds you of the simple truth that you are one with your brother and sister, that all is well. And it prompts you to be kind and to be at peace. But it will come, that message will come in a way that will be helpful in the situation. Now, one of the safeguards that Gail and I have found is that when we pray together, we can be quite certain of the answer. Maybe this is because we had such a difficult time for so many years. And now, when we come together, it's, it's quite sincere. And it's very deep. And the message that we receive, we can, we can count on. We can't always count on the message we receive when we're away from each other. And so we just take the peaceful part of it and let that be the message. And so, and when I say message, you know what I mean, don't you? It, it doesn't have to be words. It can be just a general feeling. If you sit down with someone else who's on a spiritual path and who's a very, who's very close to you in some way, a parent or a child or your spouse, someone who's close to you, and you sit down sincerely with this individual, I'm sure you've experienced having a sense of what's being said to you. There doesn't have to be any words. But a clear indication of, of some of some of some place to go mentally, emotionally. 
And so the message, so to speak, that we received was, you are conflicted about this book. The reason that the book is not being written is that you realize you will not receive credit for it. And that's coming from your ego. And, of course, your ego is right. You will not receive much credit for this particular book. It will be believed that someone else did more of the writing than they actually did. And you were also right in saying that it doesn't matter. Because I had been saying this, that it doesn't matter. But you know what I hadn't been doing? I hadn't been acting on it doesn't matter. I had just been saying, oh, it doesn't matter. And the Christ inspires everyone. There's no such thing as credit. Because the source of inspiration, whatever words you wish to give it, is one source. It is the thing that does it. The ego tries to take credit, but it doesn't have anything to do with it. All of our inspiration comes from one place in our heart. It's the same place. And so I had said this to myself. How silly that I would want credit. Because it, it, it's not coming from my ego anyway. And the voice for God said, yes, but you're not acting on that. And so then I began acting as if I believed that. And as soon as I made that decision, I remembered all the other books and how with the other books where I, where I had no conflict about writing them, I could write in any condition. It didn't matter what was going on. If I got an idea, I'd flop myself on the bed and there I'd be writing. But now suddenly I couldn't write on the bed. And now suddenly I couldn't write if the television was going. And now suddenly there had to be an adequate period of time for me to sit down. And I realized that I was the one that was throwing all these roadblocks into the thing. So the second principle is act as if the truth were true. The third one is something we've talked about very often here there's there is there is none that is more profound or far-reaching than this and there isn't one that is probably more difficult for us to practice at this time and that is simple stillness when you practice mental stillness and I've given steps as to how this can be approached because many people find it difficult to just have a blank mind. If you can do that, then go ahead and do that. If, if, if you can simply, by saying, I will have my mind be still, I will not think of anything, and if you can do that for just a, even a few seconds, then go ahead and start at that place. But many people find it difficult to do that, and so we've talked about other approaches. St getting back a little bit further and coming at this thing in easier steps. And we've talked about the, the little exercise of just telling yourself what's, what's around you. But if, you, if, if that doesn't work and if that irritates you and there's something about that that you don't like, then just go back even a step further and just watch your thoughts. And you will notice that your mind calms. It's almost as if the ego cannot operate in, the day, in daylight. So if you switch the light of day on, if you watch your ego... It shuts up real quick. 
Notice this. Here's a line of thought, and you suddenly just decide to observe the line of thought. It stops. And this is a wonderful practice. Whether you want to be a counselor, whether something horrible has just happened to you, whether something's happened to a friend and you wish to be of help, or whether you're just going about your daily life, try one of those things. Try watching your thoughts. Try saying some words of truth to yourself and concentrating on that instead of the babble. Try saying, describing to yourself what's going on around you, or try stillness. But begin someplace in a calming, in a relaxing, in a settling of your mind. Do not tell yourself you don't know how to do this. You already know some ways. There are a hundred ways I have not mentioned. Breathing and all kinds of things. And there are probably a thousand that are helpful to people that I have no idea of. Use anything that tends to sort of settle your mind. This severs your connection with your imaginary identity. It does everything at once. And yes, you will feel scared about this. Your ego will react in fear because you do everything at once when you practice stillness. You leave nothing undone when you practice stillness. But your ego will want you to think about practicing stillness. It will want you to think about uh, the fact you haven't been practicing stillness all day long and this is just hopeless. <laughs> the fourth one comes from what we mentioned in the first of these talks on crisis which is let the world come to you, the sense of waiting, the sense of the event coming to you rather than you rushing out to the event. And the corollary is, let people come to you. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you may not be aware of. Anyone who you see coming, you are afraid of. Anyone that you see approaching you, whether they're approaching you through the ringing of a phone or the knocking of the door, or you see them walking towards you in Safeway, anyone who comes to you, you believe is can hurt you. Not hurt you in a dramatic way that we're talking about necessarily, but they are capable of hurting you, hurting your feelings, making you feel bad, making you anxious, making you uncomfortable, making you lose time, whatever. Become aware of this, that everyone, even very, very close friends, even your own child, you think of as a danger and you do not want to see this person coming. This is not a conscious thought with most people. You have to look to just see what I'm talking about. Notice that, first of all, you say there is a danger there, although it may be a very mild danger. It may be a danger that you would poo-poo once you saw. I like to use elegant language. 
It's important in church. Use elegant language. So here's the danger. Notice this anxiety. Slight anxiety. Anxiety means something can hurt me. Something can hurt me. Slight anxiety. And what do you do? You attack first. Notice how you attack first. A barrage of questions. How you're doing? How's your family? How the da 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 da? You see how this is attacking? We long to be close to people. We cry because we're not close to people. We don't have any friends we're really close to. We're not close to our own family, to our parents. And yet, what do we do? With this barrage of questions, we keep people as far away from us. That we, there can't be any close, closeness is, if there's this, all this stuff going on, is there? Can there? How can there be any closeness? How can there be any warm taking into the heart? Do you see? And so we're quick with the witty remark and the clever statement. And we make our personality flashy. This is an attack. It isn't anything to feel guilty about. Just become aware of it. Become aware of it and see if you can't be a little bit more honest. Not honesty. Ego takes honesty and says, <clears throat> means attack. Be negative. That doesn't, that's not what honesty is. Honest, be a little bit more sincere in your warmth. Now, you, you may not feel any warmth, and so it might be better than trying to be sincerely loving because the ego thinks that love has, has to do with a sensation, a lifting emotion. It has nothing to do with that. Just assume that you do not know what love is, but that it will come to you in stillness. And so you wait for the person to come to you. Just as you wait for the events to come to you. Don't rush out to the person. I'm not talking about physically. Don't emotionally and mentally rush toward the person. Don't start rehearsing. If you find yourself rehearsing, watch your mind. And of course, it'll, it'll shut up. Just watch it. Receive the person calmly as if they were not a danger. As if they were your savior. Because they are. And the fifth thing I want to mention. I said last time that Jesus did not stop the attacks upon him. This is a and I, I mentioned that in the context of showing you that no matter what has happened to you, you do not need to feel ashamed of it. Because he did not stop people throwing stones at him or trying to push him over the cliff or railing against him or uh, nailing him on a cross or anything else. He didn't make any attempt to stop that. However, of course... He stopped attacks on other people. And so when Peter cut off the ear of the centurion, he of course picked the ear up and put it back on the centurion. And of course he stopped the stoning of Mary Magdalene and so forth, you see. This was an act of love. People understood this. They understood this as an act of love. He didn't hurt anyone in the process of doing that. John, uh, Gail was uh, talking about coming to someone's defense. Uh, 
Gail was talking about how she was looking in the mirror and she was saying, I look older than all my friends. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, you don't. And I started listing the friends and giving estimates. <laughs> estimates in terms of years, you know. So-and-so looks seven years older than you and so forth. Oh, no, I, I look older. I've, you know, it's, I don't know what's happened, but... I said, no, you don't. John rushed in. Yes, she does, Daddy. Yes, she does. He went over. <laughs> he grabbed hold of her leg and he said, she looks older than all of her friends. <laughs> so the words don't matter. Just what's in your heart, because that that healed the situation. You can imagine we're both laughing instead of you know, this thing. Okay, so let's take up these last few specifics. I made some some suggestions last time as to how you could treat yourself if you're an alcoholic or if you have an addiction. Let me just go over that very briefly. Dissect your own soap opera in stillness. I also suggested that you possibly would not want to do this. It might be best if you did not try to treat your own addiction if it's a major addiction. But if you must try, then go ahead and try and act as if this is the right decision. Do not try and say, well, I probably shouldn't be trying to treat my own addiction. Go ahead and try to treat it and act as if what your decision is, is true. Act as if the truth is true. Act as if you knew what you were doing, because you do know what you're doing. So go ahead and do it without conflict, without ambiguity. Dissect your own soap opera. I suggested sitting down in chairs and actually dividing the little argument in your head up into the chairs and talking back and forth to yourself, getting up, moving back and forth, the old Fritz Perls techniques. Excellent one. I suggest actually sitting in a third chair and recording what decisions you make, what plan you would like to try. I suggested using stillness before you take the sip and just asking yourself, do I wish to do that? Not, do you wish to do that? Do you really want to take that? Not that kind of thing, because that's, you know, that's siding with the angry voice. But would I like to have this first sip of this next beer, whatever it may, may be. Next magnum. Doesn't, I don't know, whatever it is. Um, and just see. Don't be afraid to be happy. Your ego doesn't want you to be happy. Your ego doesn't want you to ask yourself, would I like to do this, this time? It says to you, this is a sacrifice. How could it be a sacrifice for you to ask yourself if you want to take this next drink? You might want to deal with just the sip of the drink. How much do I wish to snort? How much do I wish to... Whatever the thing may be, you see. And if the answer is yes, do it. I'm talking about if you wish to treat yourself. Go ahead and do it. Do it in peace. One way... 
to get past the ego is to give it just a little bit of what it wants. What you're trying to do is to put your ego to sleep so that it cannot preoccupy you in your walk home. And it will come up with a new gambit all the time. One very effective way to handle your ego is to give it a little of what it wants. So you give it a little, see if that settles it down. If it doesn't, you give it just a little bit more. And now if it's settled down and you can walk on in peace, you walk on in peace. Another effective thing to do is to go cold turkey, of course. Often you will need a support group or some sort of support in order to do that. Another thing to do if you're treating yourself is to refuse to be guilty every time you slip. Start out by saying, I am going to slip. I'm trying to do this on my own. I'm going to make some mistakes. I'm deciding now, and be very firm with yourself, I'm deciding now not to feel guilty. If you could give up feeling guilty, the addiction would be over. It is the guilt that constitutes the addiction. No guilt, no addiction. This is not obvious in the beginning. But the addiction, it is actually our attraction to feeling guilty that makes us addicted. Strange, isn't it? Guilt has an actual attraction for our ego, far more powerful than you may realize. Refuse to feel, feel guilty, and you won't do it anymore, whatever the it is. And the last thing is, every time you make a mistake, start over. Don't spend any time berating yourself. Remember that the angry voice is not your ally. It will not motivate you. It will defeat you. Do not have a diatribe against yourself. Do not criticize yourself. Do not analyze yourself. Do not be angry with yourself. Do not be depressed with yourself. Just start over. Doing anything you wish. Now in counseling an alcoholic, let me just mention these things. We've spoken of not using guilt or remorse as a means of motivating, but just being peaceful. Don't use scare tactics. You, you saw how that boomeranged when people did that, when one generation did that with the other with, uh, with uh, grass and uh, acid, which the kids now are calling SID. You have to be grateful for little things. We just think of the other abbreviations they could have used there. Um, so, so when one generation told the other generation that they uh, that this was a very dangerous thing, you know, and they actually sent around the films of the high schools, someone taking a, a, a smoke of marijuana and then turning into a monster in front of the mirror and so forth. Well, the kids, of course, realized that this wasn't the effect it was having. Now, of course, they have now found that it does have some very harmful effects, but not what anyone thought in the beginning. And so people were literally trying to scare someone else dishonestly. The person knows if you're being dishonest. This cannot motivate them more than a few moments, and then their reaction to your dishonesty will set them further back. You can be firm, even harsh, with someone you are counseling, 
if you have no fear, if you are siding with their goodness, if suddenly you see their goodness and their strength and you step in, you can scream at them at the top of your voice and it'll make them smile and feel stronger and so forth. Once again, it doesn't matter what words you use or what tone of voice. Don't be arrogant. Be gentle. But gentle doesn't mean that you uh, talk very softly. It means that you're for them. That you know they can do it. Do not decide in advance what anyone needs. You know you're going over to counsel someone. Do not decide in advance what this person needs to get straightened out. You're they know the road home. You're just going to encourage them to walk. They will walk in the right direction. Let's get into suicide just a little bit. Once again, I want to apologize for covering so many situations in a three-day period. And next Sunday, we're going to have a question and answer period just on crises. So I would like for you to come with any question, especially if it's a question you have, you personally have, about any of these subjects. Battered women or rape or alcoholism or early sudden deaths or divorce or any of that kind of thing. Because as I've told you before, I've spent as much as three days just counseling a single aspect of one of these things. Just just talking about a few one aspect of, of maybe one of these divisions. And so of course this is not covered in detail. Just trying to give an idea about how the truth applies to any situation. A person who is suicidal often has had a genuine insight, which is the world that the world stinks. That their friends stinks, that their parents stinks, that they had a stinking life as a child, and it's all true. All that's true. Don't try to argue them out of that. That is not what's making them suicidal. That is a genuine insight. They have looked honestly at the world, possibly even more honestly than you've looked at it. Their mistake is the solution that they're coming up with, which is more attack. It is attack that makes the world stink. And so they're thinking of using attack to heal the problem of attack. And that's a very innocent little mistake. They just haven't yet seen that there's another, that there's another way. Your job is not to tell them there's another way. Your job is to wait and hold their hand until they see that there's another way. Because by holding their hand, mentally, I'm not talking about physically, by holding their hand, you are the other way. Be the other way. Be the example that to be kind is to be happy. The only argument, if you wish to call it this, that I've ever found to be helpful in dealing with someone who's suicidal, and I do not use this unless I feel absolutely certain that the person wishes 
to hear this and will accept this in peace. If there is any question, don't say it, because it isn't what we say. The only argument that I have found to be helpful, and I have found this to be helpful, is to simply cite the tremendous research that has been done on suicide in the last couple of decades, which indicates that you do not improve your situation by killing yourself. So you do not find yourself in a better position to solve your problems. There's so many people writing on this subject now that I know that you've come across these studies. But basically, it boils down to that when you awaken from having killed yourself, you do not find yourself in a position where you can handle the situation any more easily than you handled it before. As a matter of fact, you will feel more guilty for having done it, except in extremely rare circumstances. So about all you accomplish is, is to make yourself feel a little more guilty and begin to worry about the, the, the uh, pain that you may have caused the people you left behind. Now, your job as a counselor is not to tell someone that they're going to hurt the people that they leave behind. That is using guilt, and guilt does not motivate. But to point out to them that, generally speaking, it can be said that it's best to go ahead and see your life through, that it is extremely difficult to kill yourself in peace, and that many people who try to and think that they can kill themselves in peace, don't succeed in doing that. It is possible, but it is very unlikely that you could do that. And so it's just best if you wait. This does not mean you are condemned, that you are not forgiven, because all the research that's been done on this, and anybody who wants to hear specific books and authors and so forth, I'll be happy to give that to you after the service. Anyone who's read this research knows that, that yes, the person is definitely forgiven for this. There isn't any external condemnation, but they have their own condemnation to deal with. The other mistake that people make in counseling someone who is suicidal is that they promise them the world as a form of motivation. Now this is a very subtle form of attack. So they will cite one thing after another that has not panned out, or maybe they're centering on one particular thing, such as the breakup of a love relationship, or financial catastrophe, or something like that. And you come along and say, yes, but you haven't seen your grandchildren yet. Wait until your grandchildren are born, or such and such will happen, or don't you realize that it's always brighter on the other side of the cloud, or something like that. Uh, this, If you were to succeed in um, convincing them of that, the, the fall that they would have would just be greater the next time, because they're going to see that this thing in the world that you've promised them doesn't do it either. You see, usually the person who's suicidal has checked off all the things that they thought were going to do it for them. They may have a few things left, but don't go around promise, telling someone 
that what they need is to be more sexually active or I remember one person uh, counseled a woman that what she needed to do was to buy a skirt and a, and a shoulder bag. If you just buy a shoulder bag and a skirt, everything would look a lot better. Because this woman was wearing slacks. Now, I know none of you are that silly. You do not have to promise anything and you do not have to tap them. Just wait in comfort and in peace. All deaths are suicides. Everyone participates in the decision to leave. And on some level, we know when we're going to leave and how we're going to leave. Now, a suicide is just, it's just more obvious. It's just more obvious that the person has decided this. But A Course in Miracles says that no one dies without his own consent. You do not try, you don't need to understand that or try to figure it out. And you don't need to trace all the ramifications from that statement. Well, then what about this and what about that? It simply means, that statement simply means, what the way anyone dies is innocent. Because basically we all die the same way. And that is, we choose this particular time. It's just that there are more peaceful ways of dying. And there are less peaceful ways of dying. And so insofar as you think you have a choice, choose a peaceful way of going. Now the last thing I'd like to take up is death and divorce. And maybe some Sunday we'll, we'll go into this just as a whole session, the whole thing about the breakup of a relationship. But just in the same general way that we've talked about these other situations. Let me just talk about this one. Death is not a blessing. Do not tell anyone that it's a blessing. Do not tell anyone that uh, it was a good thing, in a sense, that, uh, that their husband left them. This is very, very common. People will come in and say, well, it's really a good thing, and then they'll tell the individual everything that bad that they know about their wife. Did you know that your wife did this, this, and this? This is a good thing. I tell you, you're really a lot better off. <laughs> isn't that obvious that that isn't, that is not a healing, that is not a, a gift of peace. You see, that's just one more bit of ego nonsense to do that kind of thing. There are stages to grief. But they are not as rigid as most people think. And they're not as rigid as some books might indicate. You do go through stages of grief in recovering from a divorce or breakup of a relationship or the death of a loved one. But in Gail's and my experience and also in Jerry Jim Paulson's experience, these things do not necessarily come in order. They do not necessarily last uh, a particular period of time, as is sometimes said. And many people skip stages, and I've even known certain people to skip the whole thing. Uh, they, they, as, as I said in the beginning, when there is this tragedy, 
and someone um, dies, and you let's say you find them, or you hear about it, oftentimes you can recall, or if you happen to remember these words when this happens to you in the future, because this is what happens in the world. Everyone dies. Everyone around us will die, or you will die before they will. So that's just the nature of the world. So when this happens in the future, you might remember these words and see that sense of peace that comes before the grief comes. Don't berate yourself if you don't see it. It doesn't matter. But sometimes someone will feel the peace and maybe it will last for a few seconds. And they will decide for the peace. They will say, ah, that's the way I'm going to go. Most of us are not that strong and simply cannot pull that off. And so don't try to make yourself do that. It's far better to accept the grief and to accept the way it comes to you and to accept the length of time that it takes you to recover from it. It will only protract your grief to try to cut it short. So you go with the grief. This other of choosing peace is not trying to cut grief short. It's just, I'll stay with the peace. But that means you've got the peace to stay with. If you don't have the peace, then just say, I will go through this as I will go through it. And there will be these riptides of grief that will come. And you'll be walking down the street and everything's been all right for three days or three weeks or something and suddenly you're engulfed. And you can't figure out why it happened. Don't try to figure out. Suddenly the grief has come upon you again. Do whatever you can do to make your body comfortable and your life situation comfortable while the grief is there. It's all right to stay in bed. Just get in bed and stay there for several days. That's all right. Anything's all right. Don't fight the grief, though. It will help to look at it very calmly if you won't try to fight it. If you won't use that as a technique of getting rid of it, it can help to look at it. And then when it does go as if by magic, it seems to suddenly just go and now you're not grieving. Allow yourself to be happy. You do not honor this loved one who died by grieving for them. Look at that ego argument straight in the face. How can you honor someone by grieving for them? This is not the way to honor them. You have not forgotten them because you are happy. You have remembered them because you're happy. And so if you feel like being happy, have no boundary to your joy. There will be times in which you will be inexplicably happy. It's all right to be happy in the middle of the grief. Don't worry if someone doesn't understand why you're happy. Even implies that you shouldn't be happy. <coughs> as best you can, allow yourself to be happy and allow yourself to be sad. And this will cover all of it with a softness. And you will feel the hand of God. And you will hear the gentle whisper that all is well. Even while it seems like the whole world has been taken from you.
So in summarizing, summarizing these three days, let me just say this. The world is not a dangerous place if you will wait for the world to come to you. And people will not hurt you if you will develop the habit of letting people come to you in peace and receiving them in peace. And even these horrible, horrible tragedies will eventually begin to take on another meaning for you and it will be like waves that will not pick you up and dash you. Will pick you up and roll you to the next wave. And you will begin to see that this is a world of waves, but you can still the waters. With your heart, with the purity in your heart, you can still the waters. You cannot somehow magically protect yourself against all these things that we've talked about. And to attempt to do that is to put yourself in a state of anxiety and to deceive yourself while it doesn't seem to be happening. Jesus himself did not attempt to do that. Let the world be the world. But glide upon it. Float upon it. Cultivate this sense of all is well. And above all, be kind. Be kind to your body. Be kind to your emotions. Be kind to your friends. Be kind to your personal history. Be kind to your future. Do not be afraid to be deeply kind and deeply peaceful.